Hospitality Media presents the Mike and Mo Show. Now here are your hosts, Mike Calandrillo and Maurice Moten. Episode 15 of the Mike and Mo Show, and as we brought you in with Mr. Hugh Jackman, who not only wanted to be on the show today, but he told us we had to talk Australian rules football, and since we know about as much of that as we do of NASCAR, we told him he couldn't go on, but he was gracious enough to give us a little bit of his Oklahoma, and for all of you wondering why we did that, it's because OKC pretty much going to the finals. But anyway, welcome. I'm Mike Calandrillo. He's Maurice Moten. And we've got a, uh, a stocked lineup full of the latest and greatest in the world of sports. Right now, I'll throw it over to Mo. Mo, what's on the docket? Yeah, that was that was Mike counting the Golden State Warriors out. That's not me, because obviously I feel like with a 73-win team, the series is not over, but we'll get into that. Oh, it's over. Uh, we're going to talk about Bismack Biombo. Mm. For the first time probably ever on a sports show, he will be the center of conversation. We're going to talk Marshawn Lynch, Annie Apple, and a firing in college football that's well overdue. We're going to talk Yankees-Mets to Mike's delight because there are good things happening again in Yankees land, sort of. Finally. And we're going to talk a little bit about Mike's city of Orlando and some soccer. Cool. Other than that, we're going we're gonna to start it off with some NBA playoffs and what's going on right now. We're going to start in the Eastern Conference because we, we kind of already know what's going to happen after watching the uh, flood that happened in Cleveland last night with the Cleveland Cavaliers trouncing the Toronto Raptors by 40 points. I didn't watch the whole game. I'll admit to you guys, I turned it off when it was like 60 to 100. I probably shouldn't have hung on that long because it was it was over after the tip-off. But uh, Cleveland Cavaliers look, again, like the team in the East, as we all thought they were. They are who we thought they were. And they're probably going to go to NBA Finals. I can't Again, I can't say the same for the other side in the West, but Cleveland's pretty much set. I know they're going back up north where they haven't won in this series. But it seems LeBron and the Cavs have it figured out. Love is not a scrub. Kyrie's got it going. LeBron is LeBron. And this ship this series should be over in six games. Man, I was so happy to finally see Kevin Love play like the Kevin Love of old. I mean, he was doing it all. He was shooting from three. He was actually grabbing the ball under the basket. He just he looked finally comfortable and, and you know, after after game uh what was it, game four where everybody said, oh, he hurt himself, or, you know, is he not getting along with Tyron Lue? That's why he's out of the game. And, again, all the speculation started. It was just really nice to see a guy who really is the linchpin to that big three finally put it together because I'm tired of seeing Richard Jefferson on the court. Uh, you're tired of seeing Richard Jefferson on the court? I mean, I mean, Richard Jefferson is a veteran. He's there to kind of, you know, pull the guys in and say, hey, let's get it together. No, no need to take a shot at Richard Jefferson like Mark Jackson did. We won't talk about that. But, um, yeah, as you said, Kevin Love is, is looking – I wouldn't say like the old Kevin Love because he – I mean, two rebounds last game. Eh. He is shooting well, though, so that that he's filling in that role that I guess Bosh used to fill in Miami, so that works well with LeBron and Kyrie, who's a ball handler. But, uh, he's he, again, he's the third wheel, and they need him if they're going to be a good team. When, when the Cavaliers lost their two games, he combined for 13 points. About five for twenty-three from the field, so he does make a difference. But when he's playing well, that puts the Cavs over the top. 
And Toronto will probably, again, I say this again, they will probably split up at the end of this postseason. DeMar DeRozan probably leaves. Biombo, who we'll talk about later, probably sign a fat deal that's undeserving. But uh, that that's 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 what you got for the East. Uh, happy for Tyron Lou. He gets he, he's probably going to get his first NBA Finals appearance, and we'll see how he does against two coaches that I believe are more experienced that are more experienced than he is, and we'll probably out coach him. I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, I don't think anybody thought Toronto would even win two games. So, you know, good for them. But again, they just we talked about it last episode where the amount of minutes being played compared, you know, for Toronto compared to Cleveland. It's just it's absurd. And again, yes, Cleveland is is the better team on paper, but Toronto does have players. So there's going to be moments that they're going to look good. But even last night, I mean, 39 percent shooting from the field, 17 percent shooting from the three point line. And you got out rebounded 57 to 30. I mean, call it exhaustion, call it lazy, call it what you will. You just, you can't expect to win anything, let alone an NBA uh, conference finals game when you put up numbers like that. And if you saw the press conference after the game when Kyle Lowry sat down and saw those stats and his eyes bugged out of his head, that's pretty much what we all saw and thought, you know, while we watched that game at home. So uh, it's been fun. It's been good, but uh, Toronto, your your days has come to a number. I'm thinking, though, did he... Was he not playing the game? Did he not realize what had happened? Why was he surprised at the at the box score? Because you you were actually in this massacre, so you should know of all people that it was that bad. When you look at it on paper, it couldn't have paled in comparison to what you saw on the actual court. Well, isn't this the same guy that walked off the court before halftime a couple games ago to get his mind right and walk to the locker room? So yeah, I mean, I'm not coming down on hard on him for that because different players do it pressure differently. I know a lot of people are saying, well, he should be able to do it pressure. You are the star player. You stick it out on the court. Hey, man, I mean, how many times has Toronto and Eastern Conference finals against LeBron James? Yeah, no, I get that, but you're you're a consummate professional. You're 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 you know, if not the best player on your team, you're the second best player. You are the point guard. You should be leading by example, and you know you're not. So you know, regardless if he's in the game or not in the game, he he didn't know what was going on. And it's funny because you you think back a couple of games ago when Clay Thompson sat down after the game too and said, oh well, we did some good things. We had forty assists. What? No, you had like seventeen, and you, <laughs> forty assists times you know two or three points would have would have said you guys would have scored like 130 points and i think that night they had like 94 so these guys are a little scary at times they don't really know what's going on you know but you know we'll give them a pass because they're players they're not necessarily you know arithmetic majors or anything like that but yeah just a little disappointing from from kyle lowry you know a guy that should be doing better or should be trying to bring his teammates up instead of you know somebody that just seems kind of out of it at this point and you know well, one minute though, weren't you the guy that wanted Kyle Lowry to come to the Knicks and play point guard? Didn't you want Kyle Lowry like a couple years ago? Weren't yeah. you upset that Kyle Lowry didn't get to come to Madison? Absolutely, and I would take him today, tomorrow, and next week because he's still a really good player, and he's you know he's on he's a younger guy. You know he's not super young anymore, but. He's still got a lot left in the tank. I'm just, you know, like you said, Toronto's never been here. They Maybe they don't know how to deal with the pressure. Uh, you know, maybe some of that falls back on coaching. I don't know. But regardless, I still would take him because he's a heck of a lot better than anything the Knicks have. But when you're in the Eastern Conference Finals, you've got to put all that other stuff aside and you've got to play through the exhaustion, uh, exhaustion and play like you've been there before. Otherwise, this game is over, you know, the next time these two teams face. You, you know what they say? 
experience is the best teacher, and I think sure. Kyle Lowry will know how to handle it next time around if he ever gets back to Eastern Conference Finals, whether it be with Toronto or anyone else. I think he'll handle it a lot better. It's just the moment might have been too big for him, yeah. and you can tell that that's the case with the whole Toronto Raptors team at this point. Can't blame Valachunas's Bal- Bal- uh, absence from, from most of the series as a reason for Toronto losing with or without him. I believe Cleveland would have still won the series. But again, this is a learning tool for for Bowery and Demar Rosen. Even though Demar Rosen is a, is a seasoned vet, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, he he takes some lessons from this as he moves on to probably LA. All right, I like that. So let's move over to the West, where again, anybody that told you that OKC would be up three games to one is either a prophet or they are lying. But of course, instead of giving the all the credit to the men in the blue. And the orange and the gold and the black. Those uniforms are horrible. Instead of giving... They're great. No, they're, or, they're, hor- they're like Nick's colors on like some kind of uh, trippy mushroom thing. It's terrible. But anyway, they're, instead of giving credit to those guys and Billy Donovan, we all seem to look at the negative, which is Steph Curry and his knee. Now, someone came out in the organization and is the person that said his knee is at, is at only 70%. So either, you know, they gave away that information unknowingly or they give it away because they're covering for something up but regardless i have a problem with this because i would think yes he is the reigning two-time mvp yes he is the best player but there has to be somebody better somebody that is at 100 percent or 98 percent or whatever that can step up and do better than a steph curry is at 70 percent because right now his knee it's obviously a problem he can't dribble penetrate they're they're transitioning off of him they're swarming him on defense he's throwing those crazy lazy looping passes that he does throw from time to time during the season but more than anything more than anything those crazy 26 28 foot three-point shots are not dropping and he continues to take them so if i'm the reigning coach of the year and steve kerr i've got to change up this game plan i've got to do something else before this series is also over and then curry will have plenty of time to rehab that knee yeah, um, if the Warriors had won the last game, I guarantee you wouldn't hear about Curry's knee being 70%. Second of all, how do we know, unless Curry is saying this, how do we know the difference between a 70% knee and an 80% knee or a 60% knee? <laughs> Why are we giving percentages on people's body parts? Sure. Like, I, I don't understand. This, this is not like arithmetic or, you know, quadratic equations. Let's just say what it is. The Thunder are a better team right now. Don't oh, yeah. give excuses for Stephen Curry because we didn't give these excuses for LeBron when he was in the finals and he didn't have Love or Kyrie. We just said LeBron lost another uh, another conference, another NBA finals. That's sure. what we said. Yeah. So the, the same applies here. And we and back up to last round when we said, oh, remember that narrative about the Warriors being really good even without Stephen Curry? Uh-huh. So 70% Stephen Curry should still be good enough to beat the Oklahoma City Thunder, should it not? I mean, the excuses are flying now, and I, yeah. and I get it because people expected the Warriors to win, so therefore, if they're not winning, there must be a reason why. To me, it's, again, it's simple. The Thunder are playing a much better game than they are, and you got to give props. I know you said this before. got to give props to Billy Donovan and what he's doing with that team. Mm-hmm. Roberts has become a, an actual shooter. Dare I say a shooter? Yeah, Not serious. even just a score, but a shooter. And uh, you see it a lot. He's got a lot of open looks, and he's knocking, he's knocking most of them down. So you got to give him credit for that. And also, I said this last podcast, podcast episode that Westbrook is going to make Curry work. 
yeah. So even if his knee, let's say his knee isn't 100%, and that's possible. I'm not saying it's not, but it's possible that it's not. So now he has to work on a, on a bum knee to guard Russell Westbrook, who goes 100 miles per hour every every game. Yeah. That's a disadvantage for Stephen Curry, and Stephen Curry is not a good defender to begin with. He gets his little skills here and there, but he's not gonna he's not gonna lock down anybody, especially not Westbrook. No, not a chance. absolutely. And people made a big deal about the Warriors' small ball lineup, and 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 you're starting to see that there's a counter to that. And people are saying, well, the Thunder they're playing a a big small lineup, whatever that means. No, they're playing their regular lineup. Stephen Adams is, is a factor. Serge Ibaka is a factor. Kevin Durant is a factor. Those guys who are who are pretty tall, Robertson is about six seven. They're all factors. They're not they're not playing down to the Warriors game of small ball. They're playing their lineup, playing their game, and it's actually working. Now I had the Warriors winning in six. Obviously that can't happen if you're even if you're not a math major, you would understand that if the Warriors were to win this series, that would have to go seven. But what I will say is this, I have, if I were a betting man, I would say the Warriors win tonight and win big. And then it goes back to the Oklahoma City, Chesapeake Arena, and I would feel like the Thunder would have to win that game because if they don't and it goes back to Golden State, Oracle Arena in Game 7, that could be a problem. Yeah, it, it, it really could. I personally see this, see this series getting wrapped up tonight. I see OKC yeah, coming out and, and, and putting it to them. And there's been a lot of there's been a lot of glaring moments for me uh, watching this game. You know, obviously as an outsider, not not having a, a dog in this race. But I, like you said, coaching. I feel coaching has been huge. I feel Billy Donovan has gone ahead and since game two, he's found Robertson open and he's he's used him as a focal point. Steve Kerr, for some reason, has not adjusted his game plan. He's sticking with obviously what got them there, but it's not working. So when we think about you know should Steph Curry be the MVP? Oh, well, is he the MOP? It doesn't really matter because it just goes to show how important Steph Curry was to that team. So they wouldn't have won 73 games. So everybody out there in the world that criticized his MVP, he is the MVP. Now, the question is, is it more important to win 73 games or is it more important to play kind of like the Spurs, rest your starters during the regular season and win whatever it is, 55, 60 games, 48, whatever it is, as long as you get in the playoffs like Oklahoma City did, but the goal is to win an NBA championship. So do you feel that by not resting his guys and going for that record that he put his team in jeopardy? No, because this Warriors team is a lot younger than the Spurs. The Spurs are like a bunch of grandpas on walkers and hoverboards. <laughs> they're, they're in their late 30s. The Warriors are very, very, they're mid-20s, young 20s. Stephen Curry is not old. He's maybe two, three years younger than me. So is Clay Thompson. So there's no excuse. I, I mean, whether they play their stars throughout the whole year or not, I feel like OKC is just a good matchup because I heard a stat. OKC has beaten the Warriors and the Spurs in the same season, I believe, three times combined. I believe they beat the Warriors once and beat um, San Antonio twice. So of all the of all the teams in the Western Conference that can match up well with the Spurs and the Warriors, it is OKC. It's just that people didn't expect it after. It seems like after James Harden left OKC, people thought of them as a second rate team. Like they're always going to be behind the Spurs. They're always going to be behind even maybe the Clippers and the Warriors. But when they're healthy, when Russell Westbrook is healthy, when Kevin Durant is healthy, when a guy like Robertson is hitting his shots, when Serge Ibaka shows some life, when Deion Waiters, Deion Waiters is actually putting in work, yeah, that team is unbeatable, and they have extreme athleticism. They can guard, they can guard positions, they can guard players, can guard different positions. We talked about Stephen Adams guarding three different um, spots on the court, 
This team is extremely long, extremely athletic, and it's a problem for Golden State because they're getting out-rebounded. The second thing is Stephen Curry is, I don't know if it's ball movement is the problem or floor spacing, but he had six assists between, I believe, games three and between games two and three. And then in the last game he played, he only hit two three-pointers, 20% from three-point land. So that's a problem. If he's not moving the ball and he's not shooting a high clip from three, the Warriors are not going to win the game. It goes back to your point. I guess he is the MVP because when he's not playing well, it shows with this team. Yes, they have enough talent to beat to beat the Portland Trailblazers, you know, to, to win a first-round series. It, yeah, they can do that. But when it comes down to Oklahoma City and their athleticism, athleticism and their superstars, just can't happen unless the team, unless the Warriors are at full strength. I think it's been a great series because we've seen two completely different teams. As far as Oklahoma City, this is this even though it has much of the same players that the same team had last year, guys like Steven Adams have totally come out of the blue really and proven that they can play. Uh Deion Waiters, who was pretty much a pariah for the his entire career bouncing from team to team, has found himself and now he will get handsomely paid next year. And again, Russell Westbrook, who I think is the you know the next coming of the Kobe Bryant killer instinct type of player. He's proving that he is a better all-around point guard than Steph Curry. I mean, it, it, it's call it blasphemy to say, but the way that he controls that team and the way he makes things happen right now is doing more for his team than Steph Curry is. And, you know, blame the injury, blame whatever. But more importantly, he's working with KD, who, you know, two years ago was considered, you know, the second best player in the world behind LeBron James. Again, you're 6'11", 7 feet tall. You should be able to shoot over people. It's it's really that simple. But more even more than that, you look at you look at Golden State and and you're getting things like from Draymond Green, Captain Crotch Kick. He's just this is the type of guy he was in Michigan State. This is why he was the second round pick because he's very unpredictable. He's a little bit hot-headed and you, and again, he's a complimentary player. If a guy, your best player, Curry, goes down, you're, you can't ride the shoulders of Draymond Green. I mean, he was he was all over the place yesterday, and he's just, he's really doing you more harm than good because he's not really focusing on either end when he, you know, we know he's a, a dominant defensive player. And then you got guys like Iguodala who are going, again, to play better when their best player is, and the same could be said for pretty much everybody up and down that roster, with Maybe the exception of Harrison Barnes, who can get his own shot because he can dribble drive. And, you know, he's a long player. So there's a lot of determining factors. There's a lot of guys that are, you know, kind of showing you that they need a superstar. And, you know, not very many that are that can do it without. But it's a good determining factor, especially when contract comes up, contract time comes up this summer. And, you know, somebody's going to want to get paid. Well, what'd you do for me when the chips were down and the ball was, you know, the most important games of the season? You either rise to the top or you go by the wayside. And unfortunately, for most everybody on Golden State, it seems to the latter. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at it now. And I, at first, I winced a little bit when you said that Westbrook is a better point guard than Seth Curry. <laughs> uh -huh. But if you look at it, if you look closely at it, he has been over the past few games. If you look at Westbrook, he's been double digits in assists the last five games. He hasn't had less than 11 assists since, since the last game of the San Antonio series. Yeah. So if you look at it, Westbrook is really doing what people would expect from Curry as a point guard and, and be a distributor. And he's he's also he's he racked up another triple double last game. So that's another thing. How many triple doubles does, does Curry get? You know, a game or a week, a season. So if you think about it, I, I would say Russell Westbrook is the better overall player. But when it comes to like shooting and you need a shooter, then you go with Curry. It depends on what you want. 
Like I think I think Russell Westbrook, people call him a two guard. He's really a shooting guard, but he he could be a point guard. He could be a really good point guard. If his shot is not falling, he can actually distribute the ball. People don't give him enough credit for that. But uh, in this series, definitely he's he's the better he's the better overall player. But at their height, I would say they're two. As you said, they're two different players. They give you a little something different. Curry again. Curry's the better shooter, whereas Westbrook is the better. I would say pure scorer and all around player. Where he can rebound, and he he just he can dunk on anyone. I would I believe he could dunk on Shaq if he really tried. <laughs> he comes to the rim with such aggression, but I like the way he's playing. I don't again. I don't think they close it out today. I think people are a little swayed by what Oklahoma City. They're on a hot streak, no doubt. They're on a hot streak right now, and it's going to be hard to put that fire out. But you got to look at Golden State as they're not going to just give in that. They're just not going to get punched in the mouth and just go home like that. They, not, not in their stadium. I don't think it happens in their stadium. I see Oklahoma City possibly winning on their floor as opposed to winning on Golden State's floor. But if it happens tonight, I won't be mad. I would be wrong on my, my prediction, but I can't be mad at OKC. I would just hope to see a really good series between the Thunder and Cleveland. Yeah, I mean, it, I think tonight it's really going to depend on on Steve Kerr and that coaching staff, and because I, I have not been impressed, the fact that he's not getting not getting Curry's mind right. If you can't score and you can't dribble drive, you've got to at least be able to control the tempo of the game and dish the ball to the players who then have to move around you. Everybody just seems like they're standing still, settling for that shot because the, again, this is a team that lives and dies by that three po- three point shot. And we and like we've said this entire time. It's small ball is nice to a certain extent, and it may work for a year or so. But the NBA and these players and coaches are smart enough to catch on. So it's changing. I mean, it even this even uh, Cleveland right now is going with more interior play. They're using their bodies, and that's what that's really what Golden State's going to have to do because Curry is not himself, and really Clay Thompson is not shooting. So I I put a lot of it on the coach of the year, and I say, are you really the coach of the year, or are you just a byproduct of what Stephen Curry has been able to do the past few years? Because right now, you're not being impressive, and you're being outcoached by Billy Donovan, who hasn't even been in the league for one full season. So, so what about your boy Luke Walton, who's supposed to be like the apple of everyone's eye? I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest. I was watching the game with my dad the other day, and I I asked him. I said, "Is Luke Walton even there?" Because I know obviously he took the Lakers job, and I didn't see him until he finally got off the bench. uh, You know, during during a timeout. So again, it's that's why I don't like the fact that these these potential head coaches can even take a job that. During the postseason, because it's a distraction, it has to be. He did it, you know. He did it. He's doing doing these press conferences, and players are talking. They, they can't wait to go to LA and play with Walton and this and that. But this guy is still signed and getting paid by an NBA club to help them reach the NBA Finals and win a title. So I don't like that. So obviously, it's, he's got to be being pulled in more than one direction. And if anybody says, well, it, it doesn't have an effect or it shouldn't, I'm sh- I'm sure it does because he's the assistant coach. He's just at the end of the day, he's just as important as the head coach. If not, he's a, he's a guy that's going to kind of go back and forth with Kerr. So, uh, yeah, I definitely think that it's on him too. You know, he, they, they're equally responsible. And if this doesn't get done, yeah, it's fine for Luke because he's got a new challenge in L.A. But Steve, well, Steve's going to have some answering to do. And, you know, again, he's not the type of guy that's going to blame a 70% knee. But, again, by not changing the game plan because of that knee – he just didn't do his job. I, I think, I know this is kind of premature, but I think Billy Donovan is the new Steve Kerr. Whereas last year we saw Steve Kerr kind of come up 
And people were like, oh, he's a new coach. He doesn't really know what he's doing. He's just feeling his way through. And then, he, you know, the worst surprised everyone and, and won the NBA Finals. Now you're seeing Billy Donovan come up and people are like, oh, it's all Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. But these guys have been together for a long time. They were, they were under Scott Brooks, who was a decent coach. And now, all of a sudden, they're being the best regular season team of all time with Billy Donovan. And I think Billy Donovan has been underestimated by a lot of people because a lot of people didn't know who he was. Unless you were unless you were close to the Orlando Magic and you remember that he he you know basically reneged on the job, mm-hmm. you don't even know who Billy Donovan was. That those Florida championships happened a while ago now. So people of the contemporary times be like, who's Billy Donovan? He just he's just some college coach coming to coach to you know the Thunder. They have two superstars. They'll be fine because they have those guys. But you gotta look at the adjustments. You gotta look at what he's doing. He's not afraid. Again, he didn't stoop down to the Warriors level, no pun intended, and go small ball. He played his lineup, and he and he he put Robinson out there to, to hit shots, and it's working. And I think people will look at him a lot differently. And I, this is why I feel like Coach of the Year and MVP. I I know it's a seasonal award, but I feel like it should you should wait because let's say you have an MVP that gets knocked out in the first round. I know it didn't happen to Steve Kerr, Steve um Steve Kerr, Stephen Curry, but I feel like these regular seasonal awards are just they're kind of hollow because you don't know what's going to happen once the games ratchet up a bit, once the games, once the playoffs come. It's a different, again, it's, it's the second season. It's totally, it's slightly different than the season. Games are a lot faster paced. Things are different. And you're starting to see, again, I would still give the MVP to Stephen Curry, but as far as coach of the year, I think Billy Donovan deserves a lot more recognition than he, than he got. Absolutely. It just goes to prove coaching is, is super important. And uh, these guys get paid the big bucks to to make the right decisions. And, you know, teams are going to live or die by what those decisions really result in. And I like your point about about the, the, the awards, too, because you'll ask any guy, and if Steph Curry gets bounced, I'm sure he'd rather give up that MVP award if he gets a shot at a, a second championship. I mean, these are the things that are more important. And, again, you look at the fact that, okay, they won 73 games. That record may never be broken again. Because they very possibly could get bounced tonight, and then what? Then it's really yeah, they hold the record, but they didn't. They didn't even make it to the NBA Finals, so it's like big deal. It's like you know the year that the Patriots went, you know what was it, seventeen and zero, up, but they lost in the Super Bowl to the New York Giants, so nobody remembers those first seventeen wins. Unless you can, unless you can make it happen, and it goes, you know, the entire way throughout the season, then it's then it's quite the accomplishment. But even if you fall one game short. It's like the meaning is totally lost. So that's uh, that's going to be it for the opening segment. But we are going to be right back with open mic. We're going to talk a little bit. My man Bismarck Biombo and his his heavy pockets. We're going to talk most favorite lady, most favorite, favorite lady, Annie Apple, the ridiculous things that are going on at Baylor University and and a man we used to call Beast Mode. We'll be right back. Open mic. Hey Mo, you ever seen that movie, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button? No, obviously I haven't, because you know I'm not a movie oh, buff guy like that. So you're right. poking fun again. I get it. Ha ha, Mike. Very funny. Well, anyway, I wanted to. I'm gonna write a, a follow up to that movie, part two, The Curious Case of Jerome James, and whatever yes. happened to him, and what did he do with all that money that he stole from the Knicks, and the reason. I ask you that is because I think, personally, we have that about to happen again with a man named Bismarck Biombo, the former sixth overall pick to the Charlotte, used to be Bobcats, now Hornets. Am I wrong? 
No, you're not wrong. This is one of the subjects that we strangely, strongly agree on. Yeah. And I know you mentioned this a while back after his big game. I believe he had 26 rebounds. You said he was going to get paid. And mm-hmm. I said, yeah, someone's going to overpay him. Unfortunately, he is. He's basically he's a backup undersized center. Yeah. Dude is 6'9". He's not gonna. He's not gonna stand to real. If we have a, a real big at seven foot, he's not gonna be blocking shots on that guy. First of all, he had to play a small ball out against the Warriors. Maybe he could block some shots, some shots there. But Biombo is not worth, I guess, the the eighteen to twenty million he's gonna get in the offseason. I know the cap spikes, but the guy is not worth it. And during the season, he he played twenty two minutes. He averaged five points, eight rebounds, and one point six blocks, which sounds eerily similar to the guy that we. <laughs> Briefly spoke about before, Jerome James. Mm-hmm. Before Jerome James got paid, you remember he had a big playoff uh, postseason in Seattle where he played 26 minutes, had 12.5 points, 6 point rebounds, and nearly two blocks a game. That season, he only played 16 minutes, scored barely five points, three rebounds, and about 1.4 blocks. And the Knicks paid him like dopes because they were starved for size, right? Yep. And this is, a, this is a quick excerpt from Howard Beck of the New York Times before James or in the process when he signed the contract with the Knicks. And I quote, for 10 days last spring, Jerome James looked, played preen like one premier, one of the premier big men in the NBA. The transformation was sudden and short-lived, but it was enough to earn James a starting job and a huge contract from the size-starved New York Knicks. And this sounds just like Biombo. Whoever signs him, it's going to be the same thing all over again because, again, like I said, he's a backup. There's a reason he was... He was coming off the bench. There, there's a reason he only gets minutes when the starter is out with an injury. So whoever pays him, you, you know, he's going to steal your money. I mean, he already stole the Kemi Matumbo's finger wag because Matumbo already said he didn't give him permission to use it. <laughs> and now he's going to steal somebody's money in the offseason. Oh, Jerome James and your baby feet and your chicken ankles <laughs> and how you could not stay healthy at all. That was the worst signing Ever besides maybe the trade and then re-signing of Eddie Curry. But regardless, the sources say that Biombo and his camp, I love that word, are already going to use Tyson Chandler's contract that was signed last year with the Phoenix Suns as a guideline. So again, if you know Tyson Chandler, he got four years, $52 million, which was absurd for a guy who's in his late 30s. Uh, Biombo is a lot younger than that. He's not probably as injury prone as a guy like Jerome James was. But again, he's at least going to start the bidding around $16 million. That is too big of a gamble in this day and age for anyone, let alone a guy that averaged six points a game. I mean, I get it. He's having a good playoff. But like you said, he's 6'9". I... I would rather have a Dwight Howard type at center for, if not less money, the same exact money because it's a true center. It's a guy that actually can go up against the bigs. 6'9", there's nobody nobody has that, that Biombo in Toronto has played has been a true center. Nobody that's putting their body into Biombo and moving him backwards. So until I see a center that really can, you know, that I'm saying, well, that guy's a true center, and Biombo can then swat him 12 times and then do the finger whack, I'm not giving him any type of money because he's a one-dimensional player. Now, somebody's going to pay him, and the reports are already that the Celtics, Lakers, Trailblazers, and even Bulls and those aforementioned Rockets are interested. Yes, those teams need a true center because they've all showed at one time this year. But again, he's not a true center. 
But again, he's going to get paid. It might be from the Bulls because reports were that Joe Kim Noah is going to take his hair and he's going to leave Chicago at some point. Somebody even said to the Knicks because him and his father, you know, he has those Knicks roots. He's from New York, but we already have Robin Lopez, so that makes no sense. But again, Biombo's going to get paid. I just hope for everybody's sake out there, it's not one of your teams because otherwise that's going to be a huge paycheck. Yeah, he's probably going to go to Portland because Portland needs an inside presence. So I see them overpaying for him just because he has what they need and has some toughness on the inside. As you said, Mason Plumlee's imprint is still left on the court out there Serious. in the city. So uh, Bismarck Biombo will be able to step in and provide the defense, defensive alternative to Mason Plumlee. And I see him going to the Blazers. I don't see him with the Bulls only because Fred Hoiberg was brought there to run a faster-paced offense. Biombo can't score. Yeah. So I don't see why, how he fits there. I think Brad Stevens and Danny Ainge are too smart to, to bring in this guy and overpay him. And the Rockets, they may just be crazy enough to do it, but if they hire Mike D'Antoni in his seven seconds or less offense, again, he's not a fit there either. So he's going to get a payout. It could, I mean, Toronto could retain him and, and pay him a whole lot of money because of his postseason performance. But, what, again, whoever pays him is going to wind up overpaying, but I guess it's okay because all NBA teams will be giving out money next year anyway. Yeah, it's going to be but, like uh, Christmas Day. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately. But uh, moving on to the NFL, something we haven't talked about in a while, but someone has come up in the spotlight again, and it's interesting for a guy who doesn't like to talk to the media, Marshawn Lynch is back in the news again, and apparently he could be contemplating a return to football. I believe it was Michael Bennett and Richard Sherman who floated the idea that said he could he could return to football. He's not completely retired. I remember reading reports saying that he didn't file his retirement papers, which left the door slightly open. And it turns out that it's it's a reality. He could play again, although I don't see it being with the Seattle Seahawks only because they have Thomas Rawls there. He does have an ankle injury. He could miss the first maybe two, three games of the season. But they did draft C.J. Proceis in the third round, and they drafted Alex Collins in the fifth round. Now, Proceis is more of a combination running back where he can run and catch. Alex Collins is more of a one-cut downhill running back. So they have a they have a good combination there. There's no there's really no room for Marshawn Lynch, but I would not be opposed to him going to the Oakland Raiders. Of Why? Course. Because the Oakland Raiders needed a running back. Yes, they drafted DeAndre Washington in the fifth round. Oh, but come on, it's Marshawn Lynch. It's Marshawn Lynch. You, you're gonna you're gonna say no to Marshawn. I mean, Marshawn Lynch played at Cal. He's from the Bay Area. Why would he not want to come back to his hometown team, finish his career there? And the Raiders are on the upswing. They could, I have them in the playoffs. I said this. I say this a lot. I have them in the playoffs. If Marshawn Lynch wants to go to a team where he's going to get the ball and the quarterback is not going to throw a one-yard pass near the end zone in the Super Bowl, come over to Oakland because <laughs> they need somebody there to run the ball downhill along with Latavius Murray. It's a great fit. The Warriors, oh, the Warriors. The Oakland Raiders have the money to sign him. They have about they have close to ten mil, slightly under, I believe nine point seven mil to sign him. It could happen. Who knows? It very well could. Uh, he again, it's funny though because we talked last year. Everybody, you know, Marshawn Lynch, this and that. He 
basically missed the entire season. You know, he played a couple games here and there, came back for the playoffs, and and this team was talking about not bringing him back uh, for the upcoming 2016 season because they had all these extra guys and that $9 million cap hit. So, again, it probably wouldn't fit in with Seattle, even though, you know, uh, everybody loves him there. He's a fan favorite. For Oakland, Oakland, yeah, he would be a great fit. The only thing I worry about Marshawn is, yes, he's a, he's an older guy. He's mature. We knew that he was a knucklehead at one time, and I always get concerned when guys go back to playing where they once grew up and lived. We know that he's done great things for the city of Oakland. He uh, recently opened uh, an apparel store called Beast Mode, and he's got all these great things going on. But I just worry that being around the influences that he was, maybe sometimes the negatives can ha- be greater than the overall positive but again that's that's you know neither here or there unless something happens but there's plenty of teams that would want this guy i mean the new york giants should should pay him hand over fist just to get him in the door because they don't have a number one running back i mean there there are so many the denver broncos the san diego chargers the chicago bears that probably the new england patriots the miami dolphins i mean you look at the the amount of running backs that are in the league that shouldn't be and if this guy does come back He's going to pretty much have his pick and choosing if, if obviously, if Seattle does let him go. But, yeah, I mean, when healthy, top top 10 back easily, maybe maybe top seven. But it'll be interesting to see. He's had, uh, you know, he's had quite the whirlwind past year and a half. Uh, he's been in Haiti recently uh, creating and building homes with, with uh, the good people there and, and rebuilding from that horrible earthquake. So, obviously, this guy's turned around his his. his career from his early days in buffalo and you know when he was driving that golf cart at the university of cal like a crazy man but uh you know what he's, he's a hell of a player hopefully he, if he wants to he comes back and he does really well because he's a lot of fun to watch can you imagine him with the with patriots with bill belichick who doesn't like to talk to media he doesn't like to talk to media uh, yeah, they would have so much fun with that that'd be great yeah that would be i would i mean again the rich get richer it's very possible that he would go there and i would not be surprised but you know you know he, he could possibly go from the most loved running back to the most hated if he goes to the Patriots, yeah. which is the funny thing about it. But, um, but we know the Patriots. Know, we'll see. We'll they, see what he does. Well, yeah, I'm the Patriots, again, they love signing those guys towards the end of their career, a la, yeah. you know, Randy Moss and Corey Dillon, and all of a sudden they get, like, three or four amazing years out of them before, you know, they then cast them aside and go with somebody else. But, yeah, we'll see. NFL's got a long way to go. And we'll stay with the NFL, and we will talk about Maurice's aunt. We'll talk about, <laughs> we'll talk about a- Eli Apple's mom because she's in the news once again. But now she's actually getting paid. She yeah. she is getting paid to tweet and say exactly what she does. Mo, what is the, what exactly is she gonna do? Well, my favorite NFL mom is now with. She's gonna be with NFL. Sunday morning countdown with the guys, and she's going to be offering her own perspective as an NFL mom, which I think is a good idea because you don't have the NFL moms on the set really giving their opinions unless they do an intricate piece on a player. Then they may dig into the family history and talk to the mom or the dad or whoever is close to the player. But she's actually going to be a regular on the show, which means she, she her, her opinion will be constantly streamlined through the media. The only thing I, I would caution is... Uh, you know, as a person, okay, Eli, okay, Eli Apple hasn't played it down in the NFL. Yes. What if he sucks? Yeah. He's garbage. Very possible. You know, is yeah. she gonna be? Is she gonna be critical of her son? Is she gonna be defensive if one of the anchors say something negative about her son? How do Eli Apple's teammates feel about this? Is she gonna say something 
on air that she shouldn't say that Eli might have told her. You don't know if Eli Apple's a pillow talker. He may say something he shouldn't say. Yeah. And then it gets to her, and then she says it, and it rubs the players the wrong way. I mean, it, it could go left pretty quickly. I like the idea with ESPN, and they're trying to take a new direction and kind of reinvent the brand. ESPN's been trying to do that over the past couple of months. But, it, again, it could, it could, it's kind of a gamble because it could go left pretty quickly, especially if Eli Apple is no good as a slot cornerback with the Giants. Totally agree. Two things. First thing, if ESPN really wants to reinvent the brand, they bring on the Mike and Mo show. They give us a primetime <laughs> slot, and they let us do our thing. <laughs> Secondly, obviously, Mrs. Apple here was, was hired because of um, the things that she says and she tweets. Now, will ESPN give her total carte blanche when it comes to saying these things, or are they going to censor her to an extent? Because literally, 10 minutes after she got the job, Lady hit the Twitter. And what she said on Twitter, very funny, but some would consider off-color. What she said is, uh, and it's hashtag, I am beyond excited to be joining the ESPN family and quite honestly happier than a Kardashian in an NBA locker room. Hashtag blessed. So I don't know if Roger Goodell would find that funny because he doesn't seem to find anything funny. But I thought it was great. But again, uh, I don't know. I don't know if ESPN, who is not always, you know, the uh, let let everything slide network. I don't know if they're going to, you know, clamp down on this lady. And if they do, it's a shame because this is what she was really hired to do, I think. I think as long as she brings viewers, I think I think what they're trying to do, ESPN is trying to bring in another demographic. They're trying to bring in women. You know, and I I don't want to say using Annie Apple, but they have her there for a reason. And it's, and I, again, I say it's because ESPN is trying to rebrand and trying to change things and trying to put women in, in positions where they can have their opinion heard, which is a great thing. But again, if being that she's connected to a player and she has a dog in the race, so to say, I wouldn't say dog, but son in the race, that could be that could be trouble because again, if he does not pan out, that puts her in a precarious position to either maybe be critical, or maybe she may take offense to someone who is critical because they say, oh, she has humor, she has personality. But when it comes to her son, I would assume that she would she would aid him if someone attacked his play on the field or someone said something that she didn't like. She would stand up for her son. So that's that's the part that could be a little tricky. It could be a slippery slope. I want to see what they do with her as far as production-wise, how much of her opinion is on the show, how much of it is on social media. And like you said, what they allow her to say and don't say. I'm sure her contract has some provisions in it. They don't want her to be a Miko Grimes. But <laughs> I'm sure they, they said, okay, we want you to be you, but just you know, don't cross this line, this line, that line. Oh, yeah, this line, don't say this. Uh, be careful about that topic, you know? Yeah. So ESPN, they're, they're, they're rolling... Rolling dice here. I think it works out, especially if Eli Apple is a good player. Yeah, I mean, this goes well. Eli does big things. I mean, there's a chunky Campbell's soup commercial written all <laughs> over this with Eli and his mom. So it could be it could be a lot of fun. But unfortunately, we're gonna move to some uh, some heavy stuff. And for anybody that hasn't heard, and we haven't really spoken about it because, again, there's a lot of details that are still forthcoming. It's the allegations of the sexual assault at Baylor University in Texas. And today, uh, basically, to put it blunt, the hammer was dropped on uh, the, the coaching staff and, more importantly, the people that run the school. So, Mo, tell us what's going on at, in Texas. Yes, Art Bryles, will, well, he's basically fired as the head coach of Baylor. The president, Ken Starr, was also asked to step down. And and basically, this just brings up 
a lot of the things that have been going on in Waco, Texas, in the small town over there. And people are saying, well, this is long overdue. And I feel it was. I don't know if you remember Sean Oakman, who was, a, who was you know, supposed to be a third round, maybe, and some boards, maybe a second round pick. He was a project, but he was a really big guy. People made a lot of memes about him being so huge. I believe he was 6'8", and he was just massive. He was a project. And you notice he's not on an NFL team. Why? Because around the time of the NFL draft, he was spending time in a jail cell. Why? Because he was he was accused of rape. He had a sexual allegation against him. And it took him off draft boards. No one drafted him. And obviously, there was a big reason why. Now, he's not the only person that's been in the media with this with this stigma attached to him. The other players on the Baylor campus, this goes, this goes further back. I... SI.com reported there were six rape sexual assault allegations from 2009 and 2016. And the administration, coaches just gave it a blind eye. And in some cases, they said women were discouraged for coming out and, and putting forth their rape allegations on players. And to me, this is totally disgusting because it leads to the NFL culture where guys like Greg Hardy think, if I'm good enough, if I can sack a quarterback 10 times a year, I can still play because it's winning over women. And that that's that's sad to say, but it's it's cultivated on the college level on a lot of these campuses. You're hearing about Tennessee and their problems. Now you're hearing about Baylor, and I'm sure it's going on in a lot of other campuses where people are afraid to speak out because they know they'll be shut out. And again, that's a huge problem. And my question to I guess the general population would be, how accountable should a head coach be for his players? When you think about it, coaches are responsible. When when parents send their kids off to college and these kids play football, these parents expect, you know, these coaches to look out for their kids on campus because they're under their supervision, their care. Now, when it comes to someone who's not on a football team, I feel the head coach should have the same accountability, accountability where if your player is abusive or accused of rape or sexual assault, you need to pull that player aside. You need to listen to all what's going on, not just the X's and O's on the field, what's going on with your play in the weight room, what he's eating or whatever, but you need to be kind of what he's doing off the field as far as how he interacts with other people. Is he abusing someone? Is he a subject of a rape case or a sexual assault case? These coaches need to pay attention to that as much as they do with this stuff on the field, and it doesn't happen. And again, this is why when you go to the NFL, you get these talented players who say, well, I put up enough stats, I can make enough money, I can beat this whole thing, and it'll all go away. And that, I believe, is the problem. So when you have the administration shooing people away, hushing people up, women, so to speak, then you have a huge problem, not just on, on Baylor's campus, not just on Tennessee's campus, but across the NCAA football landscape, the sports landscape, period. Yeah, this is wrong on so many different levels. You know, it began or what it seemed like in the news. It began with Sean Oakman and the fact that he he was basically under investigation for six months and he wasn't kicked off the team and everybody knew what was going on and none of this came to light until they finally decided that he was going to be able to play. And it was just it, one thing after the other. Look, people go to college to to become adults, to find themselves, to figure out what they want to be in life. So for anyone to go to school to and fear for their safety is completely wrong. I mean, that has to be that has to be the number one thing that that we all kind of grasp out of this is that people need to if they're going to go to school, get a higher education, they cannot fear for them, their safety or their lives. And if that's going to be a, a thing because of a football player or a group of any athletes or anybody in general, those people need to be taking taken away from that situation. And unfortunately, 
if if they had any knowledge of this, the football program and, and the coach Art Bryles, they are more than accountable. They should be legally responsible for for letting this go on because again, they are they are perpetuating the situation. They're letting people stay in a dangerous situation to. Things that they basically outside the football field, they aren't going to have much control of their players. These are these are men over the age of 18 legally. They're going to do what they want, and not everybody uses better judgment. So you can only do so much. But again, these are, these men, these boys, whatever you want to call them, are an extension of you as the football program. And if they do something negative and you didn't do anything to step in and change that, then unfortunately you and your staff and everybody involved, especially the president of the university who may or may not have covered this up, have to go and should be some kind of legal compensation, whatever it's going to be, there should be bigger consequences than just you lose your job. I mean, so what? So now he goes to another university and gets another high paying six, seven figure job and something like this, God forbid, happens again. When does it stop? When do we learn? And when do these universities finally take a stand and say, this isn't going to happen, you know, whether it's shutting down the football program for a year. We know that's not going to happen because it brings in so much money to Baylor University, but something drastic has to go on. Otherwise, one day you wake up and you have a Penn State situation where now allegations are that uh, molestation of young people happened since the early 1980s. So uh, it's just it's it's one one crazy, ridiculous happening happenstance after the other. And, and it just should not be at, a, at, a, at an institution of higher learning. What I don't get is that these coaches, they, they supposedly know everything about these players, but then when it comes to this stuff, it's like, oh, I, don't, I don't know. They sound like Scooby-Doo. Well, of course. Like, Rick Pitino did this with Louisville when they had, supposedly had these sex parties with strippers, and it came out, these allegations came out, and Rick Pitino's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm just like, um, I don't get it. You, you, <laughs> The blinders are definitely on. You oh, know yeah. all of this stuff, and you're you're Rick Pitino of all people. And I know I'm going off on another subject. Rick Pitino's a much bigger figure on Louisville's campus than Art Browse on Baylor. But these head coaches, they're looked up to by a lot of people. They have a lot of people report to them. And you mean to tell me you didn't hear anything, nothing at all happened? And, and Coach Browse, he put out this text message to his players. He said, this is Coach Browse to current and former players, hurtful to report that there's a release coming out at 11 a.m. and it's to declare that I'm no longer the head football coach at Baylor University. Due to this, due to this early release, I'm sorry that I can't talk to y'all in person. It looks the remainder of the staff will stay intact, which is beneficial to y'all. I sincerely appreciate your love, trust, and loyalty. Now, I'm not going to make fun of his southern drawl and y'all usage. But what I will say is this, is that it seems like he's just sorry that he didn't get to address the team before it comes out in the media. I know he's not going to say what happened through the text in depth, but he didn't really take responsibility or say, sorry that what I've done, sorry for what I've done. He just says, sorry that I can't address you myself and that you'll hear it from someone else. And I I took a slight problem with that because it's kind of like he's skirting through this as he has nothing to do with it. He has... A lot to do with it because his players were just running rampant. I, I wouldn't say running rampant, but they were doing things that they should have been doing on campus. And if these reports are true, that coaching staff are turning a blind eye, he had to know this stuff was going on. He had to know. Yeah, these coaches tend to treat themselves as like victims of circumstance when they really need to take that out of the equation and focus on who the actual victims may or may not have been because that that is what's important not you know somebody losing their job because they didn't do their job i mean at the end of the day it's it's really what it should be but unfortunately again college football is a big business and at the end of the day 
people will lose their jobs. Hopefully something happens good for these victims, but it's a big business and nine times out of 10, everything seems to get pushed aside and there'll be some kind of uh, contractual agreements that comes to happen out of court. And, you know, we won't hear, we won't hear about the full details because that's just the way it seems to go. But that's the end for open mic. We're going to lighten the subject with building momentum. We're going to talk New York baseball. We're going to talk soccer. And we're going to talk one of my passions, Orlando. We'll be right back. It's now time for Building Momentum. Well, as many know, it's been a rough year for the Yankees, but fear not, here we come, okay? We haven't talked a lot about Yankees, and Mo has made light of this for the past, I don't know, month and a half, because he's a Mets fan, and you know, they're doing pretty well. Well, like I always say, it's a long season. And when the Yankees fell eight games under five hundred in early May, those who aren't Yankee fans, Maurice Moten, uh, started dreaming of the inconceivable, a season in which the Yankees would finish under five hundred. You know, there, there's people in college now these days that can't even remember the last time the Yankees won, went to the playoffs, went to the World Series. They can't even remember. Well, we're back, Mo. We are so, wait, wait. we are Before so, Before you so, go into this, Mike, oh, okay. let me just, for, for, for you guys listening out there who don't want to listen to this Yankees dribble, <laughs> I'm going to tell you what the, what's going on here. Okay. What he's going to tell you basically is Yankees good. Mets bad, oh. Orlando, Orlando, great. Oh, that's well, basically what I mean, that's about. that's gonna ahead, sum that'll Go sum it up. But I'm gonna I'm gonna be more in depth than that. I'm gonna put on my uh, my analytics reporter cap. <laughs> Look, the Yankees <laughs> the Yankees have gotten better since the arrival of Araldis Chapman, who we acquired in the offseason to be the ninth inning man. Okay, because what he does is it makes seven, eight, and nine Batances, Miller, Chapman. It makes it unbeatable. And again, we're already calling these guys the formula in New York and around the country and all over Yankee Twitter sphere because basically it takes the pressure off of your starting pitching. You now only have to go five innings, six max, and you bring in these guys who are basically unhittable, and it, it just shortens the game. Now, the fact is that during the weekend, the Yankees swept the A's, beat them 12-5 on Sunday, and what it did is it finally, finally got us to 500, 22-22. Unfortunately, the Yankees dropped last night against Toronto, even though Toronto is technically the worst record in the ALE, so haha to my friends up in Canada. But it's just nice to see that finally the starting pitching staff's coming around. Pineda went six innings. Sabathia's kind of having a little bit of a renaissance. Nate Voldy the other night went eight innings, scoreless ball. Uh, Tanaka's doing his thing. And Ivan Nova, even though he got shelled last night, has been a lot better. Now, there's a lot of reasons as to why, besides the fact that Oldest Chapman is back and it solidifies the bullpen and takes pressure off. Blah, blah, blah. I just said that. A-Rod. A-Rod's been out of the lineup since May 4th with that injured quad. Now, you, okay, I know he's batting 196 and he's only got five home runs, but he's still a premier bat when healthy. Had a fantastic year last year, but losing him as the DH allowed Aaron Hicks, who they acquired from Minnesota, to play basically full-time in right field. 27 years old, switch hitter, great arm, fleet of foot. What that does is you move Carlos Beltran, who's 635 years old, Move him to the DH. Now, Beltran's having a fantastic year. We spoke last episode how he just hit his 400th home run. His average went from 261 to 274 and an on-base of 283 to 299 in just three weeks. The guy's got a bad back. 
bad knee, bad elbow. So allowing him to just DH every day is is being is basically using him to the fullest of his extent. He's 39 years old, okay? He's not getting any younger. He does have contract year coming up, so he may try to play one or two more years. But again, that's going to be in the American League because nobody's really going to put him out on the field. Now again, A-Rod is, is eligible to come off the DL today. Uh, I believe he is in the lineup, so this is going to be interesting to see exactly how the Yankees put him back in. Again, they've won seven out of their last eight. The team's on a bit of a roll on an upswing, only about three and a half games out of the wild card, five games out of the division. Do you, If you're Joe Girardi, do you throw the chemistry off of the team? I mean, Mark Teixeira's hurt. He had a cortisone shot today in his neck, uh, so there's question marks about him moving forward. I'm not really loving the, the Dustin Ackley slash Austin Romine uh, first base platoon. But for whatever reason, it's working. Ellsbury's hitting. Garner's not really hitting. But Hicks is stepping up. Headley's stepping up. Even you're getting things out of Gregorius. And the team is just playing a lot better. So whether you want to call it the pitching, the bullpen, or the fact that A-Rod hasn't been in the lineup because people are so quick to bash A-Rod, something is working. So you've got to give credit when credit is due. But more than that, again, I'm not ready to claim, all right, we're on the right track. I just am interested to see as a Yankee fan how everything comes together now that A-Rod is back. And who knows, he may go down again because, again, in baseball, quad and a hamstring, these are these soft tissue injuries that don't seem to heal very quickly, kind of like the same thing in NFL when a running back gets a quad or a hammy, kind of tends to last all year. So let's see, but it's just finally, thank the goodness gracious that I have something positive to report on the New York Yankees because the New York Mets... The New York Mets are in a little bit of trouble. And they're, yeah, they're, they're only half game out of first place, but go ahead, Mike. Yeah, no, it's not about the record because the record, obviously, they're still there. And they're, yes, they are in a tough division, but it's the injuries. It's the Matt Harvey situation. And, and Mo, as a Mets fan, I'll give you, I'll give you the, the floor. What do you think is a bigger issue? Is it Matt Harvey and the fact that he has a 6.09 ERA, or is it now the loss of Luca, Lucas Duda, who hit 25 home runs last year? I think it's Matt Harvey only because I think Terry is handling it the wrong way. He, I, I feel like he should miss a turn. I yeah. know he doesn't want to sit him, but I feel like a, a pitcher, when he's going through the, spot, the downward spiral that Matt Harvey's going through right now, where he's storming out of clubhouses, not wanting to even talk to the media about his bad performances, you got to sit him down and let him recollect themselves. I know some people say, you know, just fight your way out of it, fight your way through it. I don't think Matt Harvey is mentally strong enough to do that. I think he's a guy that you need to sit down, let him recollect themselves, and then put him back out there. Remember, every player is different. Not every player can fight his way out of a downward spiral. Some players need to take a step back, especially with baseball where it's you kind of – when you're on the mound, it's kind of like solitary. You're by yourself almost. You're not really by yourself, but in the vicinity, you're kind of by yourself out there. And all of that clamoring down on him, you know, he knows that he has a bad game. He has to go back and talk to me, and they're going to chop him down. And he's had a bad relationship with the media in the past with his bladder infections or whatever. New York, New York Post actually put out a, a terrible front page, you know, uh, poking fun at him about that. But, again, I think you just need to take this guy out of the limelight for a little bit, let him breathe, take a breath. And then come back. Okay, that's fair. I mean, honestly, it's true because you look at David Wright, who's your captain. He went ahead and he scolded Matt Harvey publicly and said that you have to be held accountable. And, you know, we're all happy to talk when we're winning. But when we're losing, it's another story. And, again, you're Matt Harvey. You put yourself in the limelight. 
you're, you know, you're the Dark Knight, you're the King of Gotham, whatever he seems to call himself. <laughs> you, you can't walk out on a presser. You're, you're getting paid, you know, he's only getting paid $600,000, which to me is a lot of money, but in this grand scheme of things for a Major League Baseball player, not a lot. But I, I was fortunate this spring training, and I got to see Matt Harvey pitch against, uh, against the Atlanta Braves here in Orlando. And I'm going to be honest with you. If Matt Harvey is 215 pounds, then my co-host is six foot three. Okay, so what, yeah, six five. Because I'm going to be honest with you. He's 27, but he looks out of shape. He, he's winded easily, and the biggest thing is that his velocity is down on his fastball. Last year, he pitched 215 innings. That's after missing the entire. 2014 season and they honestly say now there's no precise number it's not a scientific thing but they say the year after you come back from tommy john your innings count should be somewhere around 140 there's still a time left terry collins could still right the ship and do something about it rein him in but we'll see how how much rope they continue to give him or if they continue to let him get his brains beat in at the mound uh, a little dicey, but again, you know, my opinion on this, give him a break, give him a breather. Yeah, absolutely, and, and you know, Lucas Duda going down, it may not seem like it's a big deal, but again, when you're playing Eric Campbell at first base and you may play Wilmer Flores when he comes off the DL, not good. I mean, there's a couple possibilities that they could upgrade. In the short term, there's a, there's guys like Chris Carter with Milwaukee who is actually having a decent year with the bat as far as averages. He usually bats around 200. This year, he's somewhere around 260. He's got close to 10 home runs. There's a guy like Brandon Moss who plays with St. Louis. He splits time with Matt Adams right now. He might be available. Uh, Mitch Moreland in Texas. Mark Reynolds, who also can play a little bit of third base. He's with Colorado. Uh, what seems to be the guy on everybody's lips is James Loney. Uh, if you remember, he used to play with Tampa. Had a couple really good years, won a gold glove, but he's been in the Padres minor league organization since he was released in the spring. So I don't know how much you're really going to get out of him. Uh, two names that could be interesting, one being Ryan Howard. And I know people say, oh, Ryan Howard, he's done. He's with the Phillies. Why would anybody want him? Yeah. Well, he may be released because he is batting 167, but he's actually got eight home runs. So if you can get him for next to nothing, I do it. Another guy could be Mark Teixeira because the Yankees, again, depending on where they are going, if this is going to be a year that things aren't going to go the right way and they're going to rebuild. He's a guy who's got one of the better gloves in the entire major leagues at first, and we all know the Mets need defense because at David Wright at third, uh, it, it's a little it's a little lacking. So if you can get a guy with a solid glove, which, let's be honest, Teixeira, if he's healthy, should hit at least 20 to 25 home runs, it's going to help. But if you're the Mets and you're looking in the long-term view and you want to make a trade that's going to set you guys up not only for this year but for the coming, you look at Jonathan Lucroy in Milwaukee. Yes, he's a catcher, but, he, but if you want to keep his bat he's got to take the move to first base and again he can catch if and when travis darno ever comes back uh or really my top pick for first base was go to cincinnati and get joey Votto. uh he's barely 30 years old this is a, a reigning mvp a reigning uh national league all-star left-handed hitter a really really good first baseman and he's dying a slow death in cincinnati because that team's rebuilding so send them a couple prospects you might have to give up uh, a, a wheeler somebody like of, of that nature because this guy is still the real deal and i feel if he gets on a good team it's going to motivate him and that's that is what he is lacking in cincinnati but again it's early i just again lucas duda there is no time frame that he's going to come back and losing you know losing that power bat in the middle of the lineup all it does is put more pressure on david wright and cespedes and eventually you know it's going to put more pressure on on that pitching staff which as we can see uh is the linchpin to this team so We'll see what happens with you, Mo, because uh, not that I want to see the Mets lose, but uh, I, I have a wry smile on my face when things don't go right for you guys. Of course you do, because I've been killing you yeah. over, the, over the first 
10 or 12 podcasts. Absolutely. And now you, now you get to pound your chest a little bit, even though, even though the Mets are still in a good position in the division. I'm not worried about it. It's, it's May, we're going into June, and then the dog days of the summer come up. But it was in the news that Orlando is going to get the 2016 Pro Bowl. Now, come on. You're an NFL guy. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah, it's pretty cool, except that no one actually watches the Pro Bowl. Okay, well, I, I, I want to dispel that notion because that actually has better ratings than the NBA and the NHL playoffs. Now, I know the NHL playoffs is not saying a whole lot, but it's better ratings than the NFL, uh, excuse me, than the NBA. And this is a big deal because supposedly the players were the ones that were really pushing for this because nobody seemed to want to go to Honolulu, even though it's a beautiful spot. It is very, very far away. These guys, the season's over. They want to spend time with their family. And what better of a place to do it than Orlando, the home of Universal Studios, and right down the road in Lake Buena Vista slash Kissimmee slash Orlando, whatever you want to call it, Walt Disney World. Uh, This is the first time, obviously, in a very long time that Orlando is trying to come up on the map. And yes, we've had the Orlando Magic since, what, 1989. Uh, And most recently, we have the Orlando City Soccer Club led by Kaká. So for you guys that don't know anything about soccer, it's worth a Google. And uh, recently they also got a women's professional soccer team, the Orlando Pride, led, led by uh, Alex Morgan, who if you don't know her, Google her. Very nice. Uh, she is, uh, she's been a, a, a Women's World Cup champion. She's a, a U.S. medalist. So, again, a lot of pedigree going on. But more than that, what I want to tell you is that Orlando is becoming a location for, for sports, for professional sports okay now most saying well why well orlando has this thing called the citrus bowl and people were making fun of it last week when it became let me try to get this exact name right mo it was the uh camping world stadium now Uh yeah that's 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 a horrible horrible name but the matter of why they did this is because basically uh orlando had to fork over three million dollars to acquire pretty much the rights to the pro bowl and honolulu and hawaii did so it cost them five so orlando by taking in uh naming rights and they actually instituted a three million dollar tax uh on all hotel rooms has the money to bring in the Pro Bowl. So what they did is this this stadium here in the Citrus Bowl was built in the 1930s, and it's gone through many, many renovations. But most recently, uh, Orlando and, and the state of Florida instituted a $207 million stadium renovation. Okay, I mean, that that's a ton of money. Now, the, the reason why this is important, because Orlando is home to nearly 2.4 million people. Florida has... Uh, over 20 million people. And Orlando, it's the largest market in the U.S. without an NFL franchise. That's why this is important. I mean, it's the 18th largest TV market in general in the country. So for it's, for a market like that to not have an NFL team, it's a little curious, especially when you look in Jacksonville. And now why Mo was making fun of Jacksonville is because in 2015, they finished with the 27th ranked uh, attendance in the NFL. Now the attendance is actually 61,453 per home game. And I believe it was only something like 91% capacity. And what happens here in Florida is when Jacksonville doesn't sell out, they get blacked out on local TV, which, you know, not, again, you know, it's, it's Jacksonville for, uh, for many years, they've been a dumpster fire, but now that they're coming up, uh, and they look like a legitimate NFL franchise, it's kind of disappointing. So the reason that I feel that this is, a, this would be a good thing for the NFL is because right now the Citrus Bowl, whatever you want to call it, holds 65,194. So if you add those 61,000 in, we're, we pretty much could sell this out on a weekly basis, especially with the tourism factor over 60 
million tourists visit the Orlando area per year. That is a lot. Uh, look at the Orlando City Soccer Club, and last year, their inaugural season, they averaged 32,847. And then you take the fact that UCF uh, football team, formerly Blake Bortles, used to play for them. Yes, they did not have a win last year, but for their spring game this year, packed in 23,000 to become just the 22nd highest spring game attendance in all of the U.S. for 2016. I mean, football is a Florida thing. High school football, college football, Florida State, University of Florida, Miami, Tampa Bay, where, you know, again, Tampa Bay is not that close, about an hour and a half. But the Tampa Bay Rays currently sit in 29th this season in attendance, 16,889. You're going to tell me that if you didn't move the Rays to Orlando, they couldn't do better than 16,000? Because as it is, the TROP, which is like an indoor amusement park for for retirees, which is the worst stadium in the world, only holds about 21,000. So, it's not saying that the Citrus Bowl is a great place to play them forever because it ha- it's too big, honestly, but it's, it's going to be a heck of a lot better of an atmosphere, uh, better surroundings than where the Trop currently sits, which is actually in St. Petersburg. And if you ever make the trip, it's the worst drive ever because you basically have to drive around the bay all the way through Tampa just to get to St. Pete, and it does not sit in a very nice area. Now, back to attendance matters. Major League Baseball this year set an all-time record for uh, for spring training games in Florida. The total was 7,096 fans per game. That's the first time in 100 years that over 7,000 people have visited per game. Now, it just, oh, look, this is a lot of numbers, but all these numbers just lend themselves to proving that Central Florida is a right place for more professional sports. And you look at the fact that, again, like I said, football's big. Football, it, it seems to be the mecca of everything. But there were nearly 50,000 people that showed up to the Citrus Bowl for Florida State's opening spring game in April. For a spring game? 50,000 people? And, and that's a lot, Mo. Mike, a couple of things here, okay? Impressive numbers. You went down the whole thing. That's very, very impressive analytics there. I got to give up to you. I got to clap on that one. Thank you. But uh, let me just get to the reality here. How, how many U.S., how many UCF games are you going to this year? How many Jacksonville Jaguars games are you going to this year? Well, how go, many Tampa Bay Rays games are you going to this year? Well, personally, I'll go to a bunch of Rays games when they play teams that I like. When they play the Yankees, I, I typically go each year. Uh, and but the thing is, it's not close. And I will know I will go to no Jacksonville Jaguars games because that's a heck of a trip. That's like two and a half, three hours. And I've been to this stadium before. It's not a great stadium again. And it's and then for me personally, I rather watch NFL Sunday on the NFL Sunday ticket. Uh, but for as soccer games have gone, I've already gone to two. I plan on going to at least two more because it's just it's a great time. It's a great atmosphere. It's just a lot of fun. So hopefully that answers your yeah. Seem to be enjoying yourself at the soccer games. You probably yeah. enjoy yourself at those games more than the UCF games, but that's a different story. Well, yeah, and I'll go to a couple UCF games. My fiance is a, is a graduate. She's an alum, and, you know, I'll sit with the student really? section and have a good time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great school. It's the second largest student body uh, in the U.S. behind Arizona State, so it's a huge school. They have their on-campus stadium. Again, this team won zero games last year, so even winning one uh, would be an improvement. They did get Scott Frost, the former offensive coordinator of Oregon, is now their head coach, so... 
that should mean something. It should uh, should bring you know a high tempo, high intensity type game. But again, there's just there's just a lot going on as far as uh, events scheduled for Camping World Stadium. I mean, Copa America starts June 4th. That's another soccer thing, Mo. But the likes of Brazil are going to be playing there. Uh, there's a couple, uh, I believe, they're playing Haiti. Not not great games, but Copa America is a huge deal. They've got Guns and Roses coming in July. That's a that's a band, Mo. Um, WWE, <laughs> WWE WrestleMania 33 will be back. Uh, then you've got in September, you've got Florida State versus Old Miss opening week. Uh, you've also, of course, got the Russell Athletic Buffalo Wild Wings Bowl. And then in 2018, you've got Alabama Louisville opening the season. And the following year, you've got University of Florida versus Miami Hurricanes. I mean, uh, that's a that's a pretty impressive schedule for for a place that doesn't have uh, an NFL team. And uh, and unfortunately, UCF is not a, you know a perennial powerhouse, even though. They did beat those Baylor Bears, uh, was it now, three years ago in the Fiesta Bowl. So, three years ago. Yeah, you know, when Blake Bortles was there. So, again, look, it just comes to show that Orlando is ripe for professional sports. It should have an NFL team, especially, especially with all the hotels and all the money that's being put into the stadium and all the money that they're going to make off of this Pro Bowl. It's just a matter of time. And hopefully, if Tampa continues to not be able to find a stadium, which it's, it seems like they can't, Tampa itself doesn't want to give them the money st petersburg doesn't have the room for a stadium bring them to orlando you can't make money here where else can you make it vegas that's about okay, it. Back, back up back up wait a minute yeah. so you want the nfl to bring a franchise to orlando is that correct that's correct so you want the state of florida to have four nfl teams which is one more than the new york area which has Two. of course the jets giants and buffalo upstate that doesn't count more than more than the state of california is that what you're saying? Well, how many does California have now? What, four? Well, now they have four. You want, yeah. so you want them to tie because the Rams moved over. So now you want them to tie well, if you're not, California. I'll take the Jaguars. I will I will take the Jaguars to come down for Jacksonville. Unfortunately, their lease at their new stadium is like till 2030, so I don't think that's going to happen. But I'd be happy to have the Jaguars. I mean, up-and-coming team, a lot of fun to watch, but I, I they don't really, again, moving teams seems like a big to-do. Look at your uh, yeah. Oakland Raiders. Yeah, but a the Oakland Raiders are doing it one because there are frustrations with the Oakland officials in securing a long term deal with their stadium situation. So of course, if you're not going to get security there, then you have to look elsewhere, which is what Mark Davis is doing. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that. Moving the Jacksonville Jaguars, who are who should be a lot better in the upcoming season, into Orlando. Yep. Now I don't see why you would move. Jacksonville, a Jacksonville team to Orlando. I mean, unless unless the unless the move is significant, where you're going to get a huge jump in fan base, then it doesn't make sense. Moving from Jacksonville to Orlando is not a big deal. That's what Jacksonville to L.A. is a bigger deal. Yeah, but that's easy for you to say because you're in Brooklyn. The fact that Jacksonville is basically nobody talks about Jacksonville, even in Central Florida, and not that Jacksonville is again, it's not that close to Orlando. But when you talk. Football in Florida, it's Dolphins 1, it's Buccaneers 2, and it's Jacksonville way down the totem pole. Now, if you were to move Jacksonville to Orlando to when you think of Florida, you think of Miami and you think of Orlando, it at least puts them in the conversation, okay? It's the 18th largest market in the country for TV. It's the, it's the biggest market in the NFL without an NFL team. Why, why would they not have a team? What, because the, the NFL doesn't like money? Well, no, clearly no, they do. Because the NFL already has Jacksonville and Tampa Bay. That's why. But ja- I, and I know what you're going to say. They're, they're further apart. One is an hour and a half. One is two hours, two and a half hours away. I get it. But no, if the NFL is going to, like I said, if the NFL is going to make a move, it's going to be for big 
big money, big bigger market. And I get it, Orlando's 18th largest. I get it, but it's just not. It's just not gonna happen. I know you love your Orlando town area. You love it now. Great. That's that's fine and dandy. But let's not go too far and say, yeah, let's put an NFL team in Orlando, and I'm sure it'll flourish. Well, I mean, nobody ever thought they would put the NFL Pro Bowl, so I'll take my win right now, thank you very much. And then after <laughs> we have the Pro Bowl and sell out to 65000 then maybe the NFL will realize that the Orlando area is the place to be when it comes to, you know, bringing a new team. Who knows? Expansion? Uh, relocation I don't know anything at this point but I'm, I'm just glad for one this is a step in the right direction uh, obviously it looks like from the outside that sports do thrive in the Orlando area so uh, I'm very happy for the people here I think it'll be great for the economy and there's nothing bad that can come out of this where we currently stand if they move a team to Orlando NFL franchise they better be winning because if, have you seen those Orlando Magic stands have you seen the crowds out there for the Orlando Magic and I meant, they're not winning I meant to get I meant to get the attendance figures on that because I've been to those games and most of those games are sold out but you are just so, such a hater when it comes to anything non-Brooklyn or Oakland related hey I, I like Las Vegas you know Las Vegas is cool <laughs> I, I I like South Carolina you know even South, South Carolina doesn't have yeah, how's their mean, teams? North Carolina has, has the Panthers really because that's Charlotte but you know, I have some favorites, but I'm just saying. I mean, I, there's nothing against Orlando. I just don't like the weather there. But so you don't like that, you don't you don't like you don't like sunshine. You you like you like snowy uh, blizzards all year long. I I don't like sticky hot icky weather where it's like a hundred sweltering degrees. No, and, I, and, you know, I have enough melanin in my skin. Oh, that's all. You're just a typical New York guy, just like I used to be. It, it's only like that for like three months out of the season. The three months that we have sticky hot, you have freezing uh, frostbite. That's what you have. So it it evens out. And 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 looking at the numbers, the Magic unfortunately are were 17th in the NBA. So right in the middle. At uh, 17,543. But let's see. Who was below them? The Suns were below them. The Pacers, the Hawks, the Pelicans, the Grizzlies, the Pistons, a major city. Uh, The Nets were 27th, Mo. 15,120. Just? Just? How long have they been in Brooklyn? Five years? No, they just got there. Okay, you're you're crazy. you, You think they just got there? They, they kind of just, compared no, to no. when other teams have been settled in, they just kind of just got there. Uh, you're out of your mind. Let's see. I don't mean like, I don't mean like yesterday, but I mean they're they're pretty new there, too. They're pretty new to Brooklyn, Moses. If anybody's on Twitter right now, let's tell Mo how long they've been in Brooklyn. 2012, Mo. Four years. Th- that's Four years. Five years. Five years is coming up. That's oh, not. Five, no. That's not like six four. days. That's not like a month and a half. That's four that's years. High school, that's a high school oh, my from God. freshman to senior year. You know, that goes. Quick. So and do you, and do you know time. why? And do you know why they're so low in attendance? Because they put a horrible product out in the court, and their prices are astronomical to get in to watch the game. So why would anybody come watch him? And that's the bottom line. It's Brooklyn. It's coming up. As oh my so God, bad. Brooklyn! Brooklyn's coming up. Brooklyn's been coming up since 1998. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! All right, I'm done waving my pom poms now. So uh, Orlando yeah, doing so big you- things. Uh, yeah, you can wave your pom-poms for soccer. Go ahead and tell us how American soccer is is uh, inferior to European soccer, according because you're a soccer soccer expert now. You went two games Whoa. in that nice stadium in Orlando, so go ahead and let us know. I have Fill been us a, in. I have been to two games, but I've been a loyal soccer supporter for many years since my childhood. I believe uh, 1990 is it 1994 or 93 when the World Cup came to America the first time, and uh, it was in it was in New Jersey. Remember, remember that the Meadowlands. 
But uh, mm-hmm. recently came out Andrea Pirlo, Italy midfielder, uh, who used to play for my favorite club in Italy, AC Milan. Uh, plays for the New York FC. I don't know if Mo knows that. There, you guys do have two soccer teams in your uh, in your state. Uh, but he says that U.S. players are not taught technical skills at an early age, and that ultimately affects the quality of their play in the MLS. And honestly, I thought about this, and I thought back to the game that I went to see last week uh, when uh, Orlando played Montreal and I was really excited because I thought Didier Drogba who was one of the all-time great international players was going to play but he decided not to make the trip so that was a little disappointing but back to my point uh, I thought about I thought about what Pirlo said and it's true because honestly uh, Kaká's out there and he also used to play for Milan in Italy and he played for Real Madrid Kaká makes passes and he plays the game with a with a style a panache as as my uh, as my foreign friends would say plays the game it's kind of beautiful and that's why they call it the beautiful game because he does these things with with the ball and the way that he moves his body that it's it's almost like an art and whereas we have a, you know most of the team is, is is comprised of American players and they just they run they play really really hard and they use their body where if you watch the game you know you watch uh, upcoming is going to actually be Real Madrid is going to be playing Atletico Madrid. Uh, they just it's a different type of game and, and Pierlo went on to say he says it's a very MLS it's a very hard league to play in it's very physical there's a lot of running so there's a lot of physical work and for him in his mind it's uh, it's too little of play now it could just be a, a guy who's 37 kind of being bitter but it also lends itself to being kind of truthful because he says that uh, it's not actually talking about the system of the culture he's talking about the technical skills that aren't, aren't taught at a young age and unfortunately yeah it makes sense it's like America, it's not, it's not for, it's not a soccer place, but it's becoming one. People are becoming more interested in the game, but we're, but it's not the only thing that we really have to offer. Whereas in Italy, it's the main, or, you know, in Europe, it's the main thing that that people are are taught at a young age. You know, here we have baseball and basketball and and football and all these different other things. So we don't, the kids don't go out and just spend, you know, hours upon hours dribbling. It's just not something we do. So uh, I understand where he's coming from. I agree that it, it is a different type of play. I don't necessarily think that it 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 hurts our American players, but. You know, maybe it does. Maybe that's why, unfortunately, America's never had the opportunity to really be uh, have the opportunity to to play really well in the World Cup and make a, an extended run. And most of the time, a European team wins. But again, I feel like it's on the come up. It's a lot of fun. I, I say, if you've got an MLS team in your in your city, go and watch it. Tickets are not that expensive, and the season's uh, not even halfway over. So, Mo, I implore you to go to Yankee Stadium and watch New York FC and Andrea Pirlo, and I think you'll be hooked. And if not, uh, you can just send your receipt uh, to me, and I will put it into my shredder. Maybe put it into your shredder. What? <laughs> what? what? I was waiting for, like, a payout or something. Yeah, I, I'll pay you out. Yeah, right. But but quick thing. Where are the best baseball players from, Mike? Uh, I feel like this is a, I feel like this is a trap. Uh, no, it's not. But uh, uh, I want to say America. No, I mean, if you think about it, the the great baseball players are are they either have they either from or have a descent in DR. I would say. I mean, that's what I would say, in my opinion. I mean, that's it's debatable. I mean, there's there's obviously great players from the Dominican. There's great Cuban. There's Puerto Rican, Venezuelan. The majority. Sure, yeah. There's there's great all. I mean, it, it. You look back and you you see the, the baseball classic when all the countries kind of, kind of put their best players out there, and and the U.S. hasn't hasn't competed very well yet. But you know, I still feel like the best players at the end of the day, on a whole, come from the United States. But there are fantastic, amazing players that come from other parts of the country. World, okay, world. So excuse we, me, world. 
we we just spoke about Miami, well, South Florida football, not exactly Central Florida football, but South Florida football. You just said it. They, you know, before they can learn how to how to shoot hoops, they have football in their hand. My school that I went to, St. John's, didn't have a football team. We had basketball. For me, it depends on what region you're in, as far as country or within the country. There are just certain sports that are popular in certain areas. Like sure. I said, up here in the north, because you're in the south now, mm-hmm. we play basketball. I mean, we play football here too. But if you want to go to a really good football school, you're going below. You're going to the south. Sure. You know, you're going to the to Alabama. You're going to the SEC area of the country. You're not going up north. You're not playing to Syracuse. You're not really, you know, playing for those teams and expecting a lot. You're going to the SEC. So. Again, when it comes to America and soccer, how many kids get a soccer ball and their parents are like, hey, this is how you, this is how you kick, this is how you hit the ball with your head, this is how you do all of these tricks? No, you get a basketball if you're in the north, or you get a football most likely if you're in the south. And you learn how to block, you learn how to catch, you learn how to shoot hoops, dribble between your legs, spin a ball on the fork, or whatever it is. But it all depends on where your upbringing is and what the predominant sport is in that particular region or area or country. Yeah. And like you said, that's why Europe is, is pretty dominant in soccer. That's that's their sport. That's the sport they grew up playing as kids. Whereas we over here, as you said, we have basketball, football. We have a lot of other stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was I was lucky because you know I played a lot. I played a little bit of everything when I was, especially when I was younger. And I played soccer because I had a lot of energy, and my parents wanted to tire me out. And I actually became really, really good at it. But I wasn't a technical player all the way even through high school. I, I wasn't the dribbler, the the dazzle dipsy do. I was a I was a run real hard and shoot and kick real hard and score the goal. But, and it makes sense because you look at the fact of look around the world and you really, these kids dictate for what they can afford. And look, baseball is an expensive sport. You need, you need a glove, you need a bat, you need cleats, you need this, you need that. Uh, football is the same, very expensive, but then you look at basketball and all you really need is sneakers and a ball. You look at soccer and all you really need is you don't really even need cleats, but you just need footwear and some places in the world don't even have that, and they make they have a makeshift ball. So again, it lends itself to what you what you're capable of using. And in America, where where you know most areas, uh, you know, are lucky enough to have you know some kind of financial stability, kids can pick and choose what they want to play. You know, in the inner cities, yes, it's typically still going to be basketball. And you know, in these in those affluent areas, it lends itself to like lacrosse and stuff like that. And and it just, but it's cool that we at least have the option. And you know. There are programs now that are dedicated, like Jackie Robinson Baseball, where where would the where players go into the inner cities and they and they give they give kids that wouldn't have the opportunity the chance to play baseball and they give them gloves and they give them things to, to succeed because obviously baseball wants to reach uh, you know uh, different types of, of uh, you know ethnicities instead of just you know rich white people or rich anything people they want a, they want people of every race and, and religion and culture to play the game because it's still just a game. But yeah, I think I think Pirlo needed to take a different stance on it instead of just being, you know, America's lacking because they don't teach it. Well, there's a lot of factors to that as well because, you know, of more than just, well, they don't teach it. Well, there's a reason why. But going back to your, your point about needing equipment and things like that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a little story I'm, real quick. I'm going to take you back into my past when I was a young mo, right? Back in my day, okay. right? This is what we did. When we played basketball, we didn't even need a court. I remember going to the basketball courts and the older guys in their 20s and 30s, like our age, they would play, they would hog the courts. They wouldn't let the little kids play on their courts. So you know what we did? We would either take a garbage can, empty out all the garbage, put a fresh bag in there, and we would shoot hoops on the garbage can. Or 
we would take a milk crate, nail it to a tree, and shoot hoops on that. Okay, so that, that goes to show you, you know, when it comes to basketball, you don't need a lot. I also played a little bit of baseball. I was a really good pitcher, believe it or not. You, you may not see it, but I was a really good pitcher back back in my day, maybe in the fifth to eighth grade. I had an arm. I had a, I had a little 90-something mile-per-hour fastball. And what we would do is we took a handball, and we would take a, a thick tree branch off of a tree. Yes, I know it's, it's kind of like vandalism or destroying property, <laughs> whatever, but we were kids. But we would take a tree branch off of a tree, and we use that as a bat to hit the ball. And we would pitch and hit home runs and have home run derbies and stuff like that. So when it, I know when it comes to the high-tech stuff, you need pads and you need helmet, all of the stuff for safety. But as kids, you don't care about all that stuff. You're just like, hey, let's play baseball. Hey, let's play basketball. Let's do this. But never, we, we played football, but not as much as baseball and basketball because football up here in the north, especially where I live, you need a lot of space. You need some grass because you're going to play tackle. People get hurt. You can get seriously injured, whatever. In the south, you have more space. People have backyards. They can toss the football around. A lot of people over here, especially in my area of Brooklyn, we didn't have that. If we were going to play football, it had to be on concrete, and that was a huge no-no. So we turned to basketball and baseball. Hey, uh, there was a, a guy just called, and uh, his name was uh, Old Man Mo. Do you know Do you know this guy? And he, he left a message. Let me play it for you. <laughs> wow. yeah, I, I just sounded like a 50-year-old man there, but that's what we did back in our day when we wanted to play sports by any means necessary. My name is Maurice Moulton, and I used to walk 14 <laughs> miles in the snow to get to the field. And what we used to do is bring a sarsaparilla from the local general store after the game, and it was great. <laughs> Listen, Mike, just because you didn't struggle to play sports when you were a kid and you had all the equipment doesn't mean that the poor black people uh, in America can't play sports, okay? Tiny this is violin. the black guy speaking to Mike the white guy. Yes, Mike the athletically gifted white guy. He sports. Yeah, well, that's okay. Yeah. All right. Well, you know yeah. what? We're both we're both we're uh, we're both talking about sports instead of playing them. So so much for that, right? Yeah, yeah, but I still I hate. I'm just gonna caution you. I still have some athleticism left. Hey. I'm only thirty. So you're about you're closer to forty. Whoa, than me, thirty-two but, is not um, closer to forty. I play softball every Monday night. Thank you very much, and I dominate. So there you go. I, I dominate in the gym. You, so there's you dominate on NBA 2K16 on the PlayStation. That's about what I'm, you dominate. I'm working on my Russell Westbrook. Okay, I'm gonna be the Russell Westbrook of athleticism and, and sports entertainment ah, all just, right. just, oh, I, yeah. I, look, I look forward to seeing that well that is it for building momentum we're going to take a short break and we are going to come back with a wrap up and we're going to throw it to Mo and he's going to get deep on us so uh, stay tuned for that we'll be right back this is the wrap up All right, so here we are with the wrap-up. We are going to talk about Stefan, Stephen Curry. And there's been a lot of talk lately about the humble superstar, and I do that with air quotes around humble superstar. And the other day I was driving home, and I turned on ESPN uh, radio, and I, I heard Amin El Hassan on the radio. Uh, he was speaking with a, a female uh, correspondent. Unfortunately, I did not catch her name. Uh, and his take on Stephen Curry was that because he is a light-skinned African-American, uh, he appeals to a broader audience than a darker-skinned African-American a la uh, Kevin Durant or Russell Westbrook. And, and again, I, I, don't have, I don't have much to uh, you know, kind of put 
out of myself into this conversation because I, I am not of, you know, either either light-skinned or dark-skinned African-American. I am a white male Caucasian. So uh, so I, when I thought, when I heard this, I wanted to talk to Mo to get his his response because, again, I've heard this in before, you know, that, you know, in an, I guess, upbringing of, of African-Americans, it does matter to a certain extent if you're a light-skinned or dark-skinned African-American and because... And, it's kind of like a, a, it's a thing basically growing up. Now, Mo, is that correct? And do you feel that Amin Hassan is spot on or dead wrong when it comes to this assessment? He is, okay, I'll say this. I don't, I don't want to say he's dead wrong, but he's not spot on either. And I'm just going to break this down in layers. Okay, first of all, yes, there is a, there is a color uh, problem within the African-American community where light-skinned people are held to a higher standard than darker-skinned people. You see this in a lot of media entertainment where the where people are light-skinned and they're in the spotlight and they're propped up as, this is the type of person you want. I know as a male, I saw a lot of light-skinned women on my TV that were African-American descent and they had nice hair and blah, blah, blah. And it's, this is kind of what you want. You know, this is kind of what you would strive for. And the darker-skinned women would kind of be put in the background as, and you don't really want that. And even in schools, in elementary school, you were made fun of if you were darker than the rest of the kids in class, which is a horrible thing. I mean, me, I know you guys can't see me because we're on radio, but I'm kind of in the middle where I'm kind of a peanut butter complexion. <laughs> but if you were, if yes, if you were darker, if you were a dark chocolate, quote unquote, you were treated differently than the lighter people. And the lighter people were considered attractive. Now, on to Stephen Curry and whether he is considered I guess, consumable to the general public because he's lighter. And I'll address this with Amino Hassett's comment. And I'll say this, that it's not so much about his skin color. It's more about how he's portrayed. Now, his wife is in the spotlight a lot. She's a light-skinned woman. His daughter is in the spotlight a lot. She's very light. Now, that's portrayed as a wholesome family. Now, if you if you are aware of the, the stigma around black fathers, it's the fact that black fathers aren't around their children, which is totally untrue because statistics prove otherwise. But perception, in a lot of cases, is reality. And you see a lot of these shows or whatever it is. You watch Love and Hip Hop or whatever garbage is on TV. You'll see a black guy not taking care of his kids or basically talking down to the child's mother for whatever reason and just not being a good father. And people take that as that's reality. That's the norm. It is not the norm. So when they see Stephen Curry and his wife and his daughter at his game supporting him, they go, that's a wholesome family. That's what you want to strive for. That's a great black family. Not, they don't even know Curry, but they, this is what they see on TV. Because, again, TV shapes a lot of our minds and we don't even realize it. We watch TV so much that it becomes our reality. I'm not saying that Stephen Curry doesn't live an honest life with his wife, with his daughter, but I'm saying that the portrayal on TV gives people the idea that he's clean, that he, he cares about his child, or now he has children, and his wife. When you look at LeBron James, who's a dark color, you don't see his wife in stands. You don't see his kids at post-game press conferences. What did we get? We got LeBron James' mom in a, in a scandal with Delonte West, and that's what people remember, and it's not a good, it's not a good thing. And it just so happens that he is a darker complexion. But when you look at a guy like Kevin Durant, I would say Kevin Durant was probably the closest to a darker-skinned male athlete in the NBA getting the, Stephen, getting the Stephen Curry treatment. Because, I don't know if you remember, but he had that press conference where he was he was the MVP. And basically, he you know, you remember, you the real MVP to his mom because of the way his mom raised him. 
And people embraced that. People said, wow, this guy came from came from almost nothing. His mom raised him. He came to, out to be a great guy. And he portrays himself to be not soft, but humble. But Kevin Durant screwed that up himself because he started lashing out at the media over the last year or two where he didn't like criticism. I guess he was he felt that he needed to defend himself and Russell Westbrook because the team wasn't, I guess, fulfilling potential to be a championship team. So Kevin Durant started lashing out the media, so he's not the media darling anymore. He's kind of like, he plays that tweener bad boy role. He tries to be the bad guy. Kevin Durant is not that. He's a really good guy. He just has he just has thin skin at certain points where he again he'll just lash out at the media. So again, they won't portray him in the same way as they do Stephen Curry because Stephen Curry is not lashing out the media. He's he's not saying oh you know media is unfair to me. He just takes whatever it is and he he does what he does on the court. On the court, he is a cocky guy because if you don't if you see him, he hits a shot, he's shimmy shaking, he's staring down people, he's flexing. But you also got to remember, Stephen Curry is about 6'3", 175 pounds. So people don't look at him like a dominant player. He's the guy that people would say, oh, you can push Stephen Curry around. He's a little guy. He's not supposed to dominate. And because he does, people look at him differently. Oh, he's humble. It's because he's small, too. Mm -hmm. Because if he was Shaq size doing all this, people go, Shaq's a bully. Shaq's this, Shaq's that. He's a bigger guy, so obviously going to look at him differently. Again, perception is reality. People don't see the shimmy shakes that Stefan does on the court after he hits a three-pointer. But he is very cocky. But because of his his portrayal, him being around family, his daughter, his wife, when he hits a shot, he's pointing up at this guy. He claims he proclaims to be a God-fearing man. All of that combined, people will say he's a humble superstar. But if you look at him closely, at his at the way he plays the game and the way he celebrates, he's anything but humble. But again, perception is reality. Yeah, this is a wonderful point. Uh, and to further elaborate, I feel like because Stefan is smaller than the average NBA player, I feel like people can relate to him, black, mm-hmm. white, or indifferent, and can say, well, I, I could do that. Not that they can, but they right. think they can because, you know, on, t- on TV he looks like he's 5'8 compared to everybody else when we know that he's 6'4. But people will say, oh, oh, if he can do it, then I can do it. And, you know, obviously they can. So getting back to the point, if – if we can take out race out of the equation altogether, is it? Would you say that it's something? Is it? Was it more that he is not harped on because he has his family in the spotlight and he's portrayed as a family man, or is it because he is, uh, I guess, eloquent to the media and carries himself as a professional? It's it's a little bit of both, but okay. it's more so of his family oriented background and his like I said, that pointing to the sky thing that he does, it's a small gesture, but it it pronounces that he's a, again, he's a God fearing man. He believes in a higher power of God and that's what people gravitate toward. Okay. When you look at these We're- elections and stuff like that, people want a person who acknowledges religion also. Okay, and that's fair, but Cam Newton does does a bit of that too. He points to the sky Yes, it's after he does his touchdown dance, but is that be- is that why that people don't relate to Cam then, and that's why they bash him because he does the dance? But look at Cam Newton. Look at his stature. He's a big guy. I just saw a picture of Cam Newton and Stephen Curry shaking hands. Kev- Stephen Curry looks like Cam Newton's son. <laughs> the, the size of the size discrepancy is huge. Cam Newton is a big guy, and second of all, he he got a lot of spotlight because of dancing in the end zone. 
Stephen Curry's celebrations are so short and yeah. so abbreviated. People don't people miss it. People go, when, well, when did he flex? I, I've seen Stephen Curry flex in people's faces. I've seen him shimmy shake in front of opposing benches. And it happens so quickly, you don't even pay attention to it. But Cam Newton's dancing in the end zone. The camera's zooming in on him. So he looks anything but humble because he gets that, that 10 seconds, which seems like five minutes. But he's dancing in front of the camera where Stephen Curry does a quick move and you don't you miss it. But for me, I like I I respect the fact that Cam after he scores a touchdown every time if he runs the ball in will go and give the ball to a, to a young person in the front row of the stands more than Steph Curry shooting a twenty seven footer and turning around before the ball even hits the net. I, You're right. So that that's a big discrepancy to me. How people can can bash Cam, even though he seems like a genuine dude, and t- will tell you, "I'm having fun. I'm not going to change my game. I'm not hurting anyone." Whereas whereas Curry doesn't make any qualms or about anything. He he doesn't really doesn't really talk about what he does on the court excessively. He just plays his game, and that's about it. So Cam acknowledges it, Steph doesn't, and Cam gets bashed when he de- when it seems like he at least he does the right thing towards young people, and yet Steph is more of an example of, well, I'm just going to put a dagger in it and walk away. It's weird. I, I mean, I agree with you. I, I don't think either of them should be painted as, as bad guys, or, or I don't think they're all that humble either, but the difference is Cam Newton has been known to be pouty. Sure. So when you yeah. throw him at the Super Bowl press conference, he doesn't want to talk to the media. I guarantee you if Steph did that, there would be a slightly different narrative, but he didn't. You got to also remember that Steph Curry is a son of a basketball professional, Del Curry. Sure. So I'm sure Del Curry has coached him, coached him up on how to, how, to, how to react when you lose, when you win, how to handle the media. It's, all, it's, it's, it's part of the game, actually. People, don't, people overlook this, but off the court, it's part of the game of how you handle the media and how you're portrayed. Cam Newton comes from a background where... He was in trouble in a scandal in college. If you remember, if you remember, like he was in a lot of trouble coming before he even got to the NFL. So people knew who he was before that, and it wasn't for good. He's been in the media papers for for negative things. Sure. Then when he gets to the NFL, he's kind of pouty, and then he's celebrating. That rubs people the wrong way. But what Stephen Curry is, his background was. Oh, you see him in this commercial with Del Curry. He's this little kid. He comes from this small school called Davidson. It's all humble. Cam is coming from Auburn, where he won a title, a national title, and then he was in, he was in a scandal, and then he's dancing in the end zone. Sure, yes, he gives balls to the kids in the crowd, but that's to other people. That's small compared to all the other stuff they see: the pouting, yeah. the yeah. scandal, him winning a championship, him dancing, him being a big guy, being dominant and confident in himself. They see that as a threat. Where Stephen Curry is a small little guy from a small school with a dad who played basketball and. You can relate to that. Yeah, it's it's, it's just it's really amazing how how it, I guess the media just really change like you said changes the perception and can control the narrative of what really goes on because take even Bryce Harper for instance who you know seems to be you either love him or hate him and you know they're trying to make him out to be a villain to a certain extent but a couple of weeks ago there was a story reported that after the game he was walking to the team bus and uh, he spotted a homeless woman across the street with a dog and she was obviously disheveled and and and. Uh, so Bryce goes on the team bus and about five minutes later comes out with a jar of, of money 
from filled to the till, and he went across the street and he gave this woman the jar and and uh, exchanged a hug. And he walked he walked back to the bus and he walked past uh, a team rep and uh, a female team rep, and she just kind of gave him a smile and a wink. And she was asked about it, and she said, "Yeah, uh, Bryce went and he gathered money from his teammates, whatever they had on them, put it in a mason jar, and gave this money to this woman." And again. But stories like that aren't pronounced. Stories like that aren't, aren't celebrated. And not that we need to celebrate it, but if we're going to talk so negatively about someone or we're going to just harp on the negative, then we've got we've to gotta celebrate them to a certain extent or at least point out when they do things that should be acknowledged and should be something that we try to instill in a younger generation instead of just the dab and, you know, uh, telling me I'm back when I hit a three-point shot in overtime. The problem with our society, and I think it's just with people in general, is it's hard to change someone's perception of another person once they have their mind set on something. So basically, if you feel a certain way, if you don't like Cam Newton, he can visit children in hospitals, he can give out balls to kids, he can feed the homeless, and people will still look at him as a bad guy because of whatever their preconceived notions already about him. Now, let me just wipe the slate clean. We don't know any of these athletes behind closed doors, and a lot of times... Certain athletes you think negatively about are actually good people. Certain athletes that you think positively about aren't so nice people when you get to meet them. So people don't know they're athletes. But again, the problem is it's very, very hard. It takes a while for you to change perception. And for Cam Newton, all the stuff that he's done, and I don't say that it's bad, it's just him being him, it's going to take a while for his perception to change because people will always remember the pouty face at, after the Super Bowl. People will always remember, again, the scandal. People remember him dancing. And he's going to have to do years. He's going to have to have years of, of good citizenship and, and be a Samaritan and do all this stuff to, to change all of that because people are so stuck in their ways. They, they don't think there's good and bad in people. They just say, okay, this person good, this person bad, end of story. So, so am I fair then in my assessment to, to say that a guy like Amin Al-Hassan, again, with an ESPN voice, should be not so quick yeah. to just paint it black yeah. and white? This is not. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and this is what I was surprised about with Amin Al-Hassan, because he is a person of color, and I'm surprised that he painted it so, so I, don't, I don't mean a, a pun here, no pun intended, but he painted it so black and white, where it's just, oh, because he's light-skinned, he gets all the love. Yeah, and it's just not. It's just not. It's just not true. It has to do with how you're picked up to the media. Sure. And I don't know if you remember, but a while ago, LeBron James, he was shown taking off of his uh his sweats for a game, and basically there's a guy there who's supposed to pick up his equipment and take it to the sideline, and he's just kind of ignoring the guy. And these moments that get picked up on camera put LeBron in a bad light. And again, you I talked about with the situation with his mother. And all of this stuff, that all goes into perception. Unfortunately, he has no control over that. But what the media picks up and puts out to the people, the people take it in as, okay, this is who he is. I don't care about why it happened, but this is the result, and this is my perception, and it's not going to change. And it's unfortunate, and this is why players do not want to open up to the media. This is why players are becoming more and more robotic, certain players are becoming more and more robotic to the media because they don't want a negative image of themselves put out there because, again, it's very hard to change that. 
Absolutely. And, you know, we're, you and I are fortunate. We have this platform. We're an independent uh, sports podcast where we, ha- we don't basically have time limits. You know, we try to keep it under a certain extent and we can we can go off on a tangent and really explore topics. But for, for people like on ESPN or CBS radio where they have segments and they only have 15 minute intervals, I really feel like they have to be more careful if they're going to bring up a topic yeah. as explosive as this. You can't just cut it as and make it as dry as well this is the reason because he's light-skinned well no maybe maybe on the maybe at first glance but there's got to be more to it because like we just explored over the past 10 minutes it's much deeper than that so you have to be very careful i would think if you have this voice that reaches millions and millions of people to just perpetuate a stereotype because it just does so much more harm than good but but people of uh, really of power in the in in the in this industry continue to do that i don't know if it's just for quick sound bites or it's to get people like us talking about it but it really doesn't help the situation it may it may bring you more revenue and more listeners or viewers but at the end of the day you're really just doing more harm than good and all the people out there that are trying to do something better and make it make it a little easier for people of all color it's you're kind of having an adverse effect i feel Unfortunately, Mike, in this climate, race is a very hot button topic, and the, the, the fastest way to get viewers is to, people call it race baiting, but it's just basically to discuss race. But there are two ways to do it. You can do it constructively, or you can do it recklessly, where you just kind of paint with a broad brush, which I, what I, which I wouldn't advise, because yeah. if your listeners are really loyal to you and they really listen to what you're saying and your, value your opinion, you have to be very careful how you split things, whether you're splitting it black and white light and dark you have to be very careful about that absolutely wise words indeed well that is episode 15 mo as always amazing words words of wisdom things that people can really take to heart it's uh it's been fun and before we sign off anything you want to let the public know well um yeah i'll i'll be rooting for the Golden state warriors to extend the series so i won't look so silly on air predicting Golden state in six so hopefully hopefully they'll help me save face and if the thunder win in six it won't look so bad all right well fair enough by this time next week we will be in the nba finals and uh no matter who's gonna be there it's gonna be plenty to talk about lots of great stuff happening in the world of sports and as always tune in to the Mike and Mo Show, go to Facebook.com slash Mike and Mo Show, Twitter, Mike Mo Show, and of course, you can find us on iTunes, Mike and Mo Show, rate, review, and share the show. As always, we appreciate it. I'm Mike Calandrillo. He is Maurice Moton. It's been a pleasure. We will see you next week. Take care. God bless. Peace.